Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Good morning. Uh, the reading is from Hebrews 12, uh, 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape it if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is, this is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you, Mike reading the text this morning. Thanks, Wes, for reading the first half of the text, because it actually starts this morning. We're starting in verse 18, even though it ends with, for our God is a consuming fire. There's really kind of been, you know, an unpacking of that as we lead up to that last verse, our God is a consuming fire. And the first part of the text is actually um, pointing back to some Old Testament uh, references, And so before we jump into the text, it's helpful to know a little bit of history. Um, There was an individual in the second century by the name of Marcion that came to power in Asia Minor. He was excommunicated early on, but unfortunately prior to that, he kind of advocated some bad doctrine that stayed a part of the church for at least a couple of centuries. Uh, What that bad doctrine was is Marcion taught that the Old and New Testaments were incompatible. That's what he taught. The Old and New Testaments were incompatible. He believed there wasn't a continuity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He's like, yeah, they're they're just not the same. And so he actually kind of came up with his own copy of the scriptures that only had like an edited version of the Gospel of Luke. It only had you know, certain epistles. I don't think it had uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So he he never, his his thinking never completely died out because it kind of rose its ugly head in the 18th and 19th centuries. And there are actually some who today reject the Old Testament formally. Like they don't ever preach out of the Old Testament. They don't see it as significant. And there are some who actually reject the Old Testament in practice. Like they, they use the Old Testament to pull things out of it for their own choosing to develop their own doctrines or uh, when, it, when it's useful for them. But rather than seeing the continuity of it, they kind of do away with the Old Testament. Now it's true, we do not live under the Old Testament law, and it is true that in the New Testament we have a fuller revelation of God because of Jesus Christ. 
but we need to know this as we start with the text. We worship the same God as we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It is the same God. There is one God. He didn't change. We worship an unchanging God. And we need to know that in the midst of this spiritual race that we're called to run, as we've been studying in the chapter 12 of Hebrews, that the writer of Hebrews wants to take us back to some references in the Old Testament because there's one God, and that God, as it says, is a consuming fire. And we have to understand that. We don't want to be ignorant of the truth that there is one God. Kent Hughes said this. He said, sadly, many Christians today are so ignorant of their Bibles, especially the Old Testament, that they have tragically sentimentalized the idea of God, one which amounts to little more than a deity who died to meet their needs. The sin question is minimized or ignored. The result is the incredible paradox of evangelicals who know Jesus, but they don't know who God is. God is a transcendent other. He, he is completely other than us. And we're gonna learn about that as we come to this text. But why don't we pray before we do that? Father, there is much for us to learn here. And we wanna sit under your word. Open our eyes to see how glorious and awesome and holy you are. And open our eyes to see that we can also approach you. We don't have to run from you, but we can approach you because of what Jesus has done. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, as we come to the text, as Wes read, we, we see a, a tale of two mountains. There's actually two different mountains that are referenced in the text. So mountain number one uh, describes a place of uncertainty and fear. So look back at your Bibles at verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. So at first glance, when you hear that, if you don't know the story from the Old Testament, you're looking at that, you're like, I don't have a clue what that is talking about. Well, we're not going to go back and read all of the account, but what that is talking about comes from Exodus 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy 4. It's when the people of God come to Mount Sinai where Moses is going to get the law. He's going to get the Ten Commandments. And as the people of God come to the mountain, they have to cleanse themselves. They have to abstain from some things so that they can encounter God. And that mountain is holy because God has descended upon that mountain and they can't touch it. And they're instructed not to touch it because if they touch it or if animals touch it, they need to kill the animal. That's how serious this scene is. And so they get ready. They're prepared for what needs to happen. They wait for three days. On the third morning, as, as the day comes, then thunder rolls down the slopes of the mountain. And Moses 
leads the people of God out of their tents to go to the mountain, and this is what they saw. I'm gonna read from Exodus 19. It says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. So think about what that might have been like. You're with thousands of people and you approach this mountain and there's darkness that's covering the mountain and there's smoke that's coming like smoke from a fire. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be in an enclosed area where there's a fire. Maybe you're making a fire in a fireplace. Maybe you're in a campground and you close and then it starts smoking, right? Smoke is everywhere. It's dark. You're kind of gagging a little bit because the smoke is kind of everything. So that's what's going on here. But not only that, the, the ground is trembling. It's shaking. And then trumpets, you're hearing trumpets. It doesn't exactly say where that's coming from, but many think they're coming from the host of heaven, the angels blowing trumpets. This is not a, a comfortable place where people are just coming to, to kind of rest. No, they're afraid. The noise would have been deafening. And Moses speaks to God, and God answers him in a voice of thunder. And verse 21 describes that. It says, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. It is a terrifying thing to be in the presence of God. And in, in our culture where, where God has been either ignored or he's just some guy sitting up in heaven on a cloud in a robe and he's nice and he doesn't... He doesn't tell me to do anything I don't want to do, and he gives me whatever I want. This is, this is a word that we need to hear in our day. We need to tremble before God, because in this account, the people were visibly and physically assaulted with the holiness of God. Not in the sense that someone came up and assaulted them, but just the holiness of God came. The majesty of God came. And the effects of that on the people are, I can't approach this God. That I need to, I need to give myself some distance between this God and me. This God is not safe. I, I can't come to him. And whatever he says, I'm gonna have to do. So there would have been an overwhelming awareness of a separation from God because of their sin and because of his holiness. They were unable to draw near. So why is the writer of Hebrews telling us this story? We've been hearing all about Jesus and Jesus is greater and Jesus is greater this and Jesus is greater that and draw near and look to Jesus and then all of a sudden he throws this out like no, we can't approach the, the key is right here. Look again at verse 18 at the very beginning. It says, for you have not come to what may be touched. 
He wants them to remember the story. He wants them to be in awe of the story. And he wants them to know this. That's not the place that you're going. That's not the place that you're going. You're not headed to a place that's a shakable kingdom. You're not headed to a place where there's fear. You no longer need to identify with the place where God gave his law. Your identity is with a different place. It's ultimately in the place where God's law will be fulfilled. You're not running towards an inaccessible God. That's what he wants the readers to know, and that's what we need to know. Because we can forget. As I've said before, we can be tempted to not go to God. We can be tempted to not go to the Father because we view God maybe like we view an earthly father or an earthly authority, and we're tempted to not go. And he wants, the the writer wants us to know, we need to know, no, no. That's not the place you're going. That's not the God that you're going to, the God that you have formed in your head. But no, this God, he's real. You are gonna go to him, but you can go to him because you don't have to go to him in fear because of what Jesus has done. And so then he goes on and he describes another mountain. So first he describes Mount Sinai and that experience. So look back at your Bible. He describes another mountain. And this mountain is a place of certainty and joy. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. And, and it goes on and says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, to the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You've not gone to that old mountain. You've going to this place. We have come to the city of God. As it says in Philippians, we're now citizens of heaven. We're citizens of a new place, a new city, a new country, a new land. You're not citizens of that place. You're citizens of a new place where you can come. We don't see this city right now visibly. That's the place that we're going to go. We're going to see it when we're in the new Jerusalem, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth. But it's a place. It's a real place. John, in in the Gospel of John, he accounts what Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. So that place is where Jesus is. He's gone to prepare that place for us, and we should look towards that place. And so our worship is no longer centered on a place, right? Moses got the law on the mountain, and in the law, it was detailed that they'd have to go to the, the, the temple, the tabernacle at the time, and that was the place that they had to go. But now we don't have to go to a place. There's not a particular place that we have to go. Certainly, we come to this physical place on a regular basis to worship the king, and we gather in other places to worship the king, but we don't have to come to this place. Not every Christian in the world has to come to a particular place because we're now citizens of the city of God. We're going to be present there with other believers, as it says in verse 23, and we come to God. Now, again, God has not changed. He is still holy. And his 
holiness is still going to be present in that place when we go to that place. But the difference is you can now come to that place because of the blood of Jesus. You can come to that place. We have no reason to fear. The author is saying, don't don't treat your relationship with God like the the nation of Israel needed to do at at the base of Mount Sinai where the ground was shaking. When you're tempted to not go because of maybe something that you've done, you think, well, that's created a distance between me and the Lord. I don't want to go because I don't, I don't want to get it to go. I'll, I'll just wait till I get it figured out, I'll get it cleaned up, and then I can go. No, he wants you to go because we go because of his presence because it says in verse 24 that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. He came trembling with fear. But the mediator of the new covenant makes the new covenant in his blood. Rather than darkness and clouds that are shaking, Jesus makes peace. Don't we long for that? Don't we long for peace? It seems like more and more as we look around us, it's just upheaval after upheaval after upheaval. And then we can kind of let that seep into our relationship with God, but that it has no place with our relationship with God because of what Christ has done. Jesus takes away the fear. And it says in verse 24 that the, the sprinkled blood, Jesus sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember, we've talked about Abel. Abel brought a sacrifice. He obeyed God by bringing a sacrifice, and that sacrifice could not save him. It could restrain God's wrath, wrath for a time, but not forever. The blood of Jesus accomplishes the sacrifice that the animal sacrifice couldn't. The blood of Jesus accomplishes what that animal sacrifice couldn't. Now, friends, I know you're familiar with this truth because we've talked about it in the book of Hebrews. We talk about it regularly. We don't want this message to get old. We don't want this message to get old. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. It completely washes away the stain of our sin and satisfies the wrath of God once for all. Jesus' blood guarantees our eternal inheritance and our forgiveness. And Jesus is compared to Abel. Abel and Jesus, they were both killed by their brothers. Abel was killed by Cain. Jesus was killed by the fellow Jews that were around him. Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vengeance and for judgment. But Jesus' blood cries out, we are forgiven. You have peace with God. It doesn't come to us to say, no, you've got to pay for that. I mean, it is true, the sins that we have committed, that we've trusted in Christ, Jesus had to go to the cross 
for those sins. Maybe you've sung songs like, my sin put him there. Yeah, functionally it did. My sin put him there. But what's being screamed at us isn't, you need to pay for that. No, this blood is screaming to us, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. You have peace with God, and that changes everything. We're headed towards that kingdom, to the kingdom where there's peace, to an unshakable kingdom. That's where we're headed. And we, as we've learned, we know the race is hard. One thing we know as we've studied this chapter, the race is hard. And the thing that's going to get you going is to be reminded of what Christ has done and to be reminded of where you are going. It's going to help you as you relate with others in the church. It's going to help you with those relationships. Because when you are tempted to not be close to someone or maybe you don't, you don't get along with someone super easy, when you are reminded, wait a minute, we're not going to that old mountain, we're going to the new place and we're going to that place because of the blood of Jesus and you're reminded that the person seated next to you is covered in the blood of Jesus. When you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ, the first thing that should come to our minds, and it doesn't always come to our minds, it doesn't always come to my mind if, if I'm honest, but what helps me as I relate with people I don't know well or what helped others as they've related with me as I've needed to grow is that these are those for whom Christ died. So when you're in your small group and you guys are praying at the beginning of your small group, maybe just be reminded, everybody in this room right now are those for whom Christ died. And the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cover the sins of any who would repent and believe in him. So those who you encounter in your workplace, those who you encounter in the public milieu, if they would hear the gospel, they could respond to the gospel and experience this benefit as well. But think about this also when you when you feel weakness or doubt or fear or despair. Remember, back at the beginning of this chapter, we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where we need to look. The author wants us to look. He wants us to look to that place. As we've walked, marched through the book of Hebrews, he's kind of bringing things together as we get towards the end of Hebrews. He wants us to be reminded of these things. He wants us to be reminded of these amazing truths. And then, as Mike read in verses 25 to 29, there are some actions for us to take. But before the writer tells us of the actions that we need to take. He wanted to thoroughly paint this cataclysmic picture of what has happened for us. And that happens time and again as you read your Bibles. As you read in your Bible, 
there are definitely things that you'll come across in which God commands us to do. But if you, if you note, preceding those commands of the things that we're called to do, there is an unpacking of truth of what God has done. So, for example, the book of Ephesians. Many of you know that. Maybe, maybe you're a teen, and you're like, I know that book because that's where I learned to obey my parents. Or I know that book because I'm married, and there's some stuff that, you know, I just... It always convicts me when that's brought up. Or maybe there's some stuff in there about the things that I need to do towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. All that comes in chapters four, five, and six. What comes in chapters one and three, through three? The gospel. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. The gospel's big. The gospel's huge. The gospel's awesome. So why can we do those things? Because of what he's done. And so that's what's happened here in this passage. You're not going to this mountain. You are going to this one. So understand that. So understand that as you come to verse 25 that calls us not to refuse him who has spoken. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. That's a sobering, that's a sobering statement. It, it seems that God's judgment is almost, it's almost more severe for those of us who are on this side of the cross, those who've learned about the gospel, God's will being revealed. If we have accepted that and then we reject it, there are serious consequences to that because he's warning us. There is no middle ground, friends, when it comes to God. A relationship with God is not just a thing that you do on the many things in your calendar. You can't be half in. The gospel is not meant to be just something that's considered. Oh, would you, would you consider this offer? Now, certainly, I will make the statement, you should consider Christ as I appeal to people to trust in the Lord Jesus. But it's not something to just be pondered. It's not a, a fun, nice poem, maybe, some, maybe an option. No, it's meant to draw a line. It's an ultimatum. You either trust Christ and you get to go into the presence of God for eternity, or you don't trust Christ and you will go into his presence, but you won't get to stay there. You will go into eternity. Everyone goes into eternity. But those who reject Christ will not, they will not escape the experience that the people of God had at the bottom of the mountain. Because when you reject God for eternity, you're not going to be able to come into his presence. Because you're going to be fully aware of the fear of God. So will you be going to the mountain where there is fear and trembling? Or will you be going to the mountain where there's unspeakable joy and peace? 
whether you're watching from home or you're here, you've got to make that choice. Don't refuse him who has spoken. The second thing that we're called to in in this passage is build your life upon what cannot be shaken. Look at verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. His voice shook the earth. We're raised to kind of look around us and see and be amazed at things that man has made. We're raised to be amazed at big bridges that are made, that are strong, or maybe someone builds a building out of some kind of granite or stone, and it's huge, and it's looming. Countries like to show off their wealth by building big buildings that are big and strong-looking. And we're, we're led to believe that these things are solid. Maybe even led to believe things like a, a bank account that's filled with a stupid amount of money. Maybe if you're one of the top five people in the world in terms of wealth, you got that much money, nothing can touch you. And we're told that religious beliefs, we're told that our Christian belief, well, that's just something that's passing away. That's a passing fact. You've probably heard it referenced in the news, maybe even in conversations with people that you know, that's just old news. That's something from the past. This is kind of new, and you don't have to worry about that anymore. Those are just old thoughts. See, the Hebrew Christians were in a place where they were going to, or they had lost their houses. They might have been losing their jobs They might be in prison. They might even die for Jesus. And the world around them thought that was absolutely ludicrous because, no, you need to to hope in these things that aren't going to move. But as we look around at the things that look so permanent, the Bible gives us a clear picture that they're not. 1 Corinthians 7.31, for the present form of this world is passing away. 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The greatest example probably we have in history of ignoring that reality is the Roman Empire. The Hebrew Christians, they were being afflicted by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the Roman Empire. I mean, they ruled the world. They had their hands in all kinds of places. Everyone feared the Roman Empire. We kind of even don't even have a grasp of that. I mean, a lot of times in our world, there's different countries. Our country, they're big, and they have lots of power and influence. But this this nation had influence like no other. And this is written to Jewish Christians who are living in Rome. In that Roman Empire, they're laughing at the Christians. In fact, they started persecuting the Christians. They started saying, this is not going to last. We're just going to kill them off. And after, but we know how the story goes. It wasn't, wasn't that long in terms of human history, and Rome was overrun by barbarians. Maybe some of you have visited 
Europe and the Middle East, and you've seen those massive buildings that are only a fraction of what they once were because they've been torn down. They've been broken through the midst of wars and building statues, things that were looted. Everything's just left in shambles. But do you know what's lasted? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has lasted. So that's what we need to build our lives on, friends. That's what we need to build our lives around. Let's not think that the place in which we live, the country in which we live, let us not think that that's, well, that's going to weather the storm. You know, I know, I know for ages past, you know, there are lots of nations rose and fall, but this nation, is, it's going to last. Friends, it says in verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And then verse 27 says this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So I'm not even talking, I don't think this is just referring to things that men make. I think this refers to things that God makes as well, like mountains, like the rock of Gibraltar. These things that you're like, no, nothing is going to move that. God's going to shake it. God is going to shake it. Jesus, it's going to be shaken. And this is what it says in 1 Peter, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. They'll be exposed. I looked all over my house to try to find the right illustration for this, but I realized I would have to destroy whatever I was going to use. Because if you think the image is grabbing something that it's shaken so violently that the only thing that remains is that which is strong. And the things that remain that are in this world are not the things that our eyes think that are strong. We look around and we think that they're strong. But you've seen pictures of earthquakes, things that are strong are brought to nothing. You've seen the waves of a hurricane. The things that are strong are ripped apart, just like the sandcastle that you build on the beach, and when the big bully comes along and just rips it right apart. Everything that we see is going to be shaken. But there are going to be things that remain. We must be prepared to let the world go. Our priorities must be different. What 
are you holding on to? What are you investing in? When the shaking comes, will it still be left standing? What are we giving our time and our efforts to? What are you most passionate about? What are you spending your times, your time, your talents, and your treasures on? Is that going to last? Now, friends, again, we are, we are going to a place we don't have to be afraid of. I mean, we can eagerly look, even though the shaking is going to come, that we are saved. First Corinthians says, Paul says this, each one's work uh, will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that has been built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So you will be saved, friends. You are going to be saved. There's a promise there. Because of what Jesus has done, we're going to be in his presence. But what are you taking with you? What are you taking with you? I can guarantee if whatever you got in your pockets and you pull it out, you ain't taking that. You're not taking that. You ain't taking the car that's in the parking lot. We ain't taking this building. We're not taking the house that you live in. But how are you using those things for God's glory? How are you using them as you love God with your life and as you love other people? How are you you using that? That stuff is going to last you're going to actually get rewarded for it. You are going to get rewarded for it. So so you're saying if I give something away for the kingdom, I get it back and more later. Yes, that's absolutely what I'm saying. That is what the Bible says. Where's your treasure, friends? We need to understand It's going to be shaken. And the author of Hebrews is writing to a people whose lives are being shaken everywhere. That's what they're aware of. They're more aware of the shaking than they are of any certainty in their life. And there may come a day in our land where the shaking is just going to be constant. We all feel it a little bit. We all feel it a little bit right now. There's just, it just isn't settling down. People are getting angrier. So when the shaking comes, we have to understand like that's not the shaking. That's shaking that we're feeling, but that's not the ultimate shaking that's coming. But let that shaking remind you, wait, a shaking is coming. A shaking is coming. I can be ready right now for when the shaking comes because when it comes, I want to make sure my stuff lasts. I want to invest in the thing that lasts. So when the shaking comes, I can, I can take that with me. And what's going to last Sharing the gospel with others is going to last. Investing your resources for God's glory is going to last. You're going to seek God for what that looks like in your life. That's why we commit monies out of our church budget to see the gospel go forward in other places. Why? Because, yeah, we could use extra money to fix the roof or get the parking lot nicer, but who cares about that? Well, I'd rather see the gospel go forward in Africa, where missionaries are going and dying for the sake of Jesus and to hear that souls were saved. And so what if we have 
potholes in the parking lot. Friends, let's, let's consider how we build our lives. Build our lives on what, on what won't, be, won't be shaken out. Because we're going to a kingdom where it's not going to be shaken, a place where there's no fear. Now the author then kind of turns the corner and he goes to land the plane and he says in verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So he goes back, he loops back around. We receive this kingdom, the kingdom that's not shaken. That's the kingdom that you're going to. It's not gonna be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The gospel invites us to love God by drawing near to him. You are safe because of Christ. But let us not flippantly approach God. Because as we started out and as this passage ends, it says, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, in Exodus 3, when Moses saw the burning bush. God called him to come near. God called him to come near. But he said this, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Even though The threat of his wrath has been removed by the cross. He's not a tame God. C.S. Lewis really paints this picture of God in the Chronicles of Narnia when Susan was talking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan, right? Aslan, the Jesus figure. She's talking about getting to, to meet Aslan. Aslan is a lion? The lion? The great lion? Ooh, said Susan. I thought... He was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's That's our God. And as we've studied chapter 12, one thing we know is for certain, the marathon is tough. It's tough. It's hard. But as we encounter it, press into God because you can because you can, because of what Jesus has done. Though he's someone that we should reverence, he's the one we should reverence. We don't want to take it lightly. When we sing, we aren't putting on a show. We are coming before the presence of a holy God because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that we've received because he went to the cross for us. So as it gets hard, consider him, as it says in 
as Hebrews 12.3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He, he encountered the hostility so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we no longer have to be thinking about Mount Sinai. I thank you that we are now citizens of heaven and we need not fear and I pray for us that we need that we that we wouldn't fear and that we would come. And then in light of your holiness and in light of the fact that we're not going to the place of judgment, but we're going to the place of joy and peace, Lord, would that change the way that we live? Would that change the way that we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Would that change the way that we interact with the lost world around us? Lord, would we evaluate everything that we do so that what we invest in lasts? the glory and praise of your great name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.